Have you ever asked the question whether or not you've truly given your heart to Jesus Christ? It's something that we should ask. And in Mark chapter 14, we learn how Jesus exposed the true hearts of people and how he can do the same for us. It's a message entitled Hearts Laid Bare. It's taught by Pastor Chris Van Hook, and it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. I want you to open your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark 14. And today is Communion Sunday. And oftentimes we teach a message and then we take a short time in communion. But I want you to understand that today's entire service, we're going to be thinking about the communion that we're going to take uh, this morning. And so as we go into this communion Sunday, I want you to leave your finger in Mark 14, but I want you also to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Paul says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy, which means irreverent, manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, and here's the key verse, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that means died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. At the time that this was written and in the culture that it was written, remember the, first, the, the Corinthian church was kind of a mess. They were mostly a Greek church and they had a lot of pagan practices that they brought into the church with them and Paul had to correct a lot of what they did. And remember, as we will be getting into the last Passover, um, generally the, the communion that they took was at the end of a feast. They sat around and ate together, but what was happening in Corinth was they would have this feast, and a lot of the people there were practicing two sins. Number one, they were getting drunk, and number two, they were practicing gluttony, and they were eating all the food before everybody showed up. So it'd be as if we uh, brought these people in here Friday night and some of you came in here and ate all the food up before the people that we invited actually got to eat their food. And they were getting drunk as well. And so Paul wrote to them these instructions that you cannot take communion, the Lord's Supper as we call it, in an unworthy or irreverent manner, he was instructing them in that. And he said in verse 28, a man must examine himself. And today, as we study through our text, we're going to be doing that. Now, it's not always easy to examine ourselves. I'm sure you guys know this because we don't always know what's in our hearts. Ever notice that? You try to think about, okay, God, you know, what, what have I done wrong? I'm trying to confess my sin, and we can't even figure it out half the time. Why is that? Well, because we don't know what's in our hearts. But God knows. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 is the key. 
I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Now, the text that we're getting into today, it's, it's really so rich that I could easily do five sermons and approach it from a different angle in each one of those sermons. So I promise I'll have you out here by midnight tonight because I'm going to do all five. Okay? But actually today we're going to look at them from a very focused, um, a very focused point of view. In the text today, we're going to see hearts that are laid bare. We're going to look at the hearts of the Pharisees, the hearts of Judas, the hearts of Mary of Bethany, and the hearts of the disciples as we go through this text. And we're going to see what their true relationship with Jesus really was. And as we're doing that, I think we're going to see something about our own hearts. And we're going to have a chance to examine our own hearts before we come to the table of communion this morning. So uh, if you're in the text, Mark 14, verse 1, and let's pray one more time before we get into the text. Heavenly Father, as we look at what you have to show us this morning, I just ask, God, that you would lay our hearts bare. Lord, that we would be able to examine ourselves by what we see in other people and how we can apply that to our own life. And I pray, God, that we would each this morning be examining our own hearts so that we come to you in a worthy manner this morning. And Lord, that we use this opportunity of communion to make changes in our hearts and in our lives. So we just ask you by the power of your spirit to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, Jesus, by stealth, that's an interesting word, by stealth, and kill him. Verse 2, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, I want to give you a little background here. The Passover and unleavened bread, if you'll notice here, they're connected together, and it sometimes gets confusing, but this really became all one celebration by the Jewish people, the, the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the first day was the Passover. Uh, generally... Uh, you know, scholars believe that this was celebrated on Nissan 15 through 21, Nissan being April, not the car that I drive, okay? Um, and the whole idea was to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And I know that you guys know that story, and, and the unleavened bread, you know, has two meanings. One, it has the fact that... that they were going to leave in haste, and so they had to eat in a hurry. They didn't have time to leaven their bread, but also to take the leaven out of the bread represented taking the sin out, and, and they cleaned their house out, and the sin was out of the house. So this, this was absolutely huge. I, I think sometimes we don't understand. You know, we have to think of Christmas and Easter and multiply it almost by 10 to the Jewish person. Now, at this time in Jerusalem, there was likely over two and a half million people. How many of you guys have been to Israel? and been to Jerusalem. Anybody in here? I've never been there, but I'm sure that you could tell us how amazing that must be to think of two and a half million people in that, in that space. How do we know that? Well, Josephus records that there was a Roman uh, calculation, uh, um, not necessarily on this particular Passover, but on one in that time period where they counted over 265,000 lambs that were purchased 
for sacrifice. And the law said that there had to be one lamb for 10 people. So if you calculate that out, you know, that that could be 2.65 million people all there at one time. That's important to understand what's going on in this situation here. And the Passover and unleavened bread was so important that every Jewish male, and remember that meant every male over 12 years old in the Jewish culture, that every single one within 15 miles of Jerusalem must attend. They had to come in to Jerusalem and attend the Passover time. But really, moreover, it it was a dream for all Jewish males to attend uh, Passover in Jerusalem. And of course, they would bring their family as well. In fact, if they were celebrating it somewhere else, at the end of the feast, they would remark one to another, next year in Jerusalem, because that was the hope and the goal of their life, to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. It was also a time where there was much anticipation of the coming Messiah. If you've ever been to the Seder feast, you could understand why. You know, they had the table set for Elijah, that place for him, and they knew that Elijah must come before the Messiah. So there was great anticipation during this time. People actually during Passover would be looking for the Messiah. We sometimes forget that during that time. And so there was great anticipation and excitement, and I think you can understand then why on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate all the time, where there were people who actually did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, it wasn't looking like what they thought it was going to look like, but there were many who thought that maybe he was this Messiah that they'd been anticipating for all these hundreds and hundreds of the years. But what do we see in the text that we just read? We see the hearts of the Jewish leaders laid bare. If you look back, you see that their only thought at this point in time was how they were going to kill Jesus, but how were they going to do it without stirring up the people? And that's why I brought up how many people were there. And remember, many of the common people were following Jesus And they liked what Jesus had to say, and they saw the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders that were ruling over them. Now, this hatred and this plan and plot to kill Jesus had been fomenting for a long period of time. You can turn to these if you want, but you don't have to. You might want to just mark them in your notes. John 5.18 said this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If the JWs came by your house this Saturday, this is one that you might want to take them to, by the way. John 7, 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then there's Mark 14.55. Now the chief priests, and we're going to see this later too, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Luke 22.3-6 says... And we'll read this later also in Mark. And Satan entered into Judas and was called Iscariot, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. 
And verse 5 says, They were glad and agreed to give him money. So you... Hey folks, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. And we'll be back to the message in just a moment. We've been doing a Sunday night service called 633. And in it, we've been looking at a subject called the dark dangers of the occult. The occult speaks of that which is hidden, secret, literally occluded, behind the veil. People are fascinated with these subjects. But God warned in both the Old and New Testament that the occult is something that is forbidden and even dangerous. We want you to have access to these resources to teach you more about the occult so you can tell people who are dabbling in it or messing with it about the hope and the love and the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. You can access this information at our website, walkintruth.com. You can turn to these if you want, but you don't have to. You might want to just mark them in your notes. John 5.18 said this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If the JWs came by your house this Saturday, this is one that you might want to take them to, by the way. John 7, 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then there's Mark 14, 55. Now the chief priests, and we're going to see this later too, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Luke 22, 3 through 6 says, and we'll read this later also in Mark, and Satan entered into Judas and was called Iscariot, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and verse 5 says, they were glad and agreed to give him money. So you can see what was in their hearts. They only had one thing in their hearts, and that was how are we going to put this man to death without having the people riot? You know, it reminded me of, of Herod. If you remember King Herod, he wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he was afraid of the people. And so he kept bringing, you know, John up to talk to him and really kind of to make fun of him. But I think he had some interest as well. But finally, because of what happened with Salome, he finally beheaded John. But he didn't do it for a while because he was afraid of the people because John had many followers. And it's, it's interesting that these Jewish leaders wanted to do the same thing with Jesus. It's also, to me, very ironic that at a time when the Jewish leaders who knew the Scriptures, we, we forget that sometimes, these Pharisees knew their Scriptures. They knew them well. Why were they not anticipating the Messiah's coming? Why were they not excited that it could be this Passover when the Messiah might actually come? But instead, they had only evil intent in their hearts. And here's another interesting thing. Isn't it interesting that though they were determined to put Jesus to death at a time other than the Passover, that Jesus was put to death on the Passover? Who was in control, them 
or him. Now, Jesus had already exposed the hearts of these Jewish leaders much earlier. I want you to turn with me here to Matthew 23, and there's quite a few verses here, but we need to read these verses because we need to understand the true heart of the Pharisees as the Scripture lays their heart bare before us. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, listen to this closely, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Verse 20, therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, or cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Think about that. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? So Jesus lays bare the hearts of the Pharisees. Those leaders were so far from God that the only thing they could think about was how to stay in power. And to do that, they knew that they were going to need to kill this Jesus. And you know, not only did they want to kill Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but in John 12, 10, we're, we're told they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Why? Well, they wanted to get rid of evidence. Here was a man raised from the dead by Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. Later on, of course, in the book of Acts, we read how they killed Stephen because they looked upon him as a threat of spreading the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to think of this, that the apostle Paul called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees before he came to Christ. And he was right there when Stephen was murdered, giving approval to it. As we look at all that Paul wrote, we have to go back and realize his heart was as hard as all of these other Pharisees that we were just reading about in those scriptures. So the heart of the Pharisees laid bare before us. The only intent of their heart was evil. And yet they were the leaders of the day. Well, we're gonna dig more into the text here and in this next section, we're gonna see two more hearts. We're gonna see the heart of Judas and the heart of Mary of Bethany. So verse three of our text, Mark 14. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and I wanna clarify, they probably should have wrote in here former leper because Jesus had healed Simon the leper and they were at his house. They wouldn't have been at his house had he not been healed. They were in the home of Simon the former leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Verse four, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard of this, as we read earlier, and promised to give him the money, and he began to seek how to betray him at an opportune time. So I want us to start off looking at the heart of Judas, which once again is laid bare before us. <clears throat> John tells us, that Judas was the one who brings the complaint of wasting money on Jesus. John 12, four through seven. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, isn't it typical as we, as we look at what took place here, isn't it typical that a person with a completely selfish motive can make their evil intent sound spiritual? Doesn't that happen? And then what happens? Foolishly, the disciples, and foolishly, oftentimes, we will do the same thing. We'll jump right on that bandwagon. Somebody will come up with some legalistic thing and we're just right, oh yeah, they shouldn't be doing that and we're all judgmental and, and we just jump right on there or, or how many times when you know, you're talking with another person and a person decides they want to gossip about another person but they make it sound really spiritual. I'm only telling you this because you know, we really need to pray for this person and then they betray a trust that that person may have had with them and we jump right on that bandwagon. This is what Judas had. He had an evil intent in his heart. He could care less about the poor. He wanted to steal the money. Now, many of the movies that you may have seen um, about Jesus and include Judas Iscariot, oftentimes they kind of portray him as this poor, confused soul. And that really he, he wanted to support Jesus as the Messiah, but you know, he really saw Jesus doing the wrong way. And, and some of them even want to portray that he did a noble thing in betraying him because he thought he was going to put Jesus to the test and he finally would have to, you know, put the, the Pharisees down and take over. That's not true at all. His heart is laid bare before us. Judas was a thief with evil intent. Our, our text told us that he already had in mind to betray Jesus. Now, at what point in time he came to that conclusion, we don't know. But his motives were selfish, and money was his God, not Jesus. Even when he realized that what he had done was wrong, and, and it says there were remorse, it was not repentance, it was just remorse. And he did not turn to Jesus. Instead, he threw the money down and went out and killed himself. There was no repentance there. This is what Jesus said about Judas, in case you think I'm wrong. In John 6, 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, which included Judas Iscariot, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael, and I appreciate you listening to today's message. I want to tell you about the store at walkintruth.com. On the store, we have a brand new teaching up. It's on the occult. It's called The Dark Dangers of the Occult. And we have taught on the subject of demon possession, and we also have taught on the subject of Wicca or witchcraft. And there's more to come. And you need to know about this subject. You need to know what's going on with the occult, what the Bible says about it. It warns about it being forbidden. It warns that you should not mess with it. But there's also something else. We need to reach out to people in love with the truth of Jesus who've gotten involved in the occult. You can have access to this information, these resources to learn more and to become a more effective ambassador for Christ. It's all available at the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.